Well, good morning. It's so good to see you again. Some of you, anyway, I've met before. So uh, if you remember, I'm Dennis, and I talk funny. In fact, I don't. I just speak English. Um, you know, when it's funny, I come to Florida. I call it Florida, but people here don't call it Florida. They call it Florida. To me, it just sounds strange. And uh, you do that with lots of different words. But um, let's just say, can you understand me okay? I'll try to speak slowly. Because, uh, you know, where I live in London, on the east side, we speak very quickly. And when we get excited, we speak even more quickly. So I'll try not to get too excited. Uh, and, uh, but I, pray that, I really do pray that God will use what I say this morning. Um, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about him. And I really pray that we will hear something from him today. Thanks for the welcome. Um, a few people already to me said, it's so good to have you back, which is nice to get that. I go to a different place almost every week of my life, so to come back somewhere is good. Uh, and to meet some of those faces that look familiar is, is really good too. Thanks, Philip, for the introduction about what's happening with the rooftop. It's growing and growing, even more than uh, what Philip said, really. We're, we're just, I was just in Africa again, and we're, we're now started in a number of other countries in Africa. Um, we just started in Sierra Leone, which is on the west side. We started in Tanzania, which is on the east side, and in the Congo. And without me even going there, our pioneers, as we call them in Africa, are starting in more new countries. We're starting in Madagascar, and we're starting in Namibia, and we're starting in a few other countries as well. So across Africa, this ministry called The Rooftop is growing and growing. It's not about The Rooftop, it's about Jesus. Amen. And what's happening is Jesus is helping churches across Africa to reach people beyond the walls of the church. It's not just Africa, it's happening in the United States too. Um, just a few months ago, we had big rooftop gatherings in Washington, D.C. and in Chicago. And next year, we're planning to have them in, in also those cities, but also um, in, we hope, Nashville um, and in Cincinnati, possibly in Cleveland and Columbus as well in Ohio, and then going back down into Kentucky, into Lexington and Louisville, over in L.A. and in Phoenix and in Tucson, and maybe even Seattle as well in Washington State. In January, I'm going to be down in Latin America, in eight countries in Latin America, where we're going to start the ministry there. In Spanish, en español. Si hablo poquito español. That's it, finished. Um, uh, and just in a week from now, our U.S. pioneer, his name's John, he lives in North Carolina. He survived Florence, which I'm pleased to say. He, uh, he's just, just two days ago, he flew to Seoul, Korea. Um, and in about a week from now, isn't it? I think it's a week from today. They will, he will be leading a rooftop encounter in the highest building in Seoul, um, taking leaders to the, the highest building, looking across the city of Seoul and saying, how do we join Jesus in his mission? Really interestingly, from that high building, you look out of one window and you see into North Korea, which is just kind of interesting, isn't it, really? Think what God could do if the church could join Jesus' mission in North Korea. Um, so that's what's happening. Just a quick update. As Philip kindly said, we've got some stuff out the back there. I've got a little book I wrote, which is good for insomnia. If you've got that, come get one of those. And we've only got a handful with us. But just please, if you want to connect, please do. Fill in a little thing, and we'll keep you in touch with what God is doing. But this morning, what I really want to focus on um, is, is just to try to bring something from God's Word, which I hope will encourage you as a church, but also maybe challenge you. Sometimes when God gives me a word to bring... I get really excited because I think it's one of those words that's going to be really up there and everyone's going to get excited about it and everyone's going to think, wow, yeah, or wow, yeah. My wife always tells me, when you get excited, don't go high-pitched, go low-pitched. So I'll try to go low. Wow, yeah, not yeah, like Philip. I, I can't even compete with this guy. He's so low. Um, but, but, but 
really what, what God has laid upon my heart to bring to you today is a message about, about something very simple, something that we all know this word inside out and back to front, really, I guess. But it's a word that I just sense as I travel the world and see what I see. Perhaps the thing which is, which is most needed in a world now where fewer and fewer people even know who Jesus is. Because you know that's what's happening, don't you? Even here, it's happening. In Europe, it happened a while ago. Now it's happening here. But in a world where fewer and fewer people know who Jesus is, the word I want to just think about briefly this morning, you know it, but I want to just unpack it a little bit, is the word discipleship. What does it, what does it really mean? And you know, when you look at what happened, if you've got a Bible, turn it to John's Gospel. Would you just, we're going to spend a bit of time in John and then jump to Matthew. But in John chapter 1, go right to the beginning of it. I, um, I love this particular scripture. When, when I, some of you might remember when I came before, I said that I come from a completely not-churched background. I, w- I was an atheist till I was 19. And when I be- became a Christian and started reading the, the Bible, which I stole from the church I went to, if you remember, <laughs> uh, and I read the Old Testament and got lost completely in it, I didn't have a clue who anyone was or what was going on at all. And I remember flicking through to find if there was anything better. <laughs> Sorry, it's not good theology. I, I have a different view of the Old Testament now, but I had no idea what was going on then. And I flicked through and found there was a New Testament. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's better than the old one, and started reading that. And then when I started reading passages like this in John, I mean, I just couldn't put it down. And I remember then, and I still do now, the thrill of reading these, just these verses. Look at verse 14 of John chapter 1. I just love it. It's just such, if it was set to music, I'm not sure what the music would be, you know, but it would just be a great piece of music, wouldn't it? Listen to this. The Word, this is, this is God, the ever, ever existing God, Jesus. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Isn't it just incredible? Amen. You know, if you, if you just think about it, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He just he became one of us. God, who made the universe, enters into the experience of the people that he's made. Isn't that just amazing? Amen. And it's not just amazing because it's in the Word. It's amazing because what the Word tells us is what actually happened. It really took place. God became a man. And he was a man with a mission. And I remember when I read that all those years ago and kept reading through, I used to read the whole New Testament a couple of times a day when I first became a Christian because I just couldn't put it down. And then, then you read what that mission is like. And, and I, I found as I've travelled the last few years, increasingly across many of the developing parts of the world, just talking to churches I've met with and leaders and pastors of different cities and regions, let's just look at what happened when this word became flesh. Before we think about discipleship in about six minutes, let's just look a little bit first what it is we're following. What, what, when Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple, what is he about that he's doing that he wants us to follow him to do? Does that make sense? And as I've been te- teaching in these different countries around the world, I've been just simply saying, let's look at what happens with this Jesus as, as he walks. What does he do? And I've said to the churches and the pastors I've been speaking with, if we can just try to do something impossible for a moment, but try it. And I'll ask you the same. Can we just forget what we think of when we think about church and discipleship, just for a few minutes. Just lay them on one side, just put them over there. And just, so don't think about a Bible study group or don't think about a Sunday worship service. Just put them over, yeah? Is that okay? Just on one side for a moment. And just look at what Jesus did that he asked us to join him in by becoming his disciples. And if you look at it, it's staggering. I love it. I love it because it means there's hope for everybody in the world. 
Because what Jesus did was, he did not come to the world and start some kind of movement that said, right, I need to get myself a great big place and fill it up with lots of people and then fund it. What he said was, the word, listen, the word became flesh. Just one of the things that is funny, whenever I go to Africa, the children always like to touch my arm because it's white. Well, kind of white. It's getting a bit grey now, but it used to be white. Um, and, and they just touch. You, you, and they feel. You, you feel it. There's something about And here's the thing. When God became a man, he became flesh so much so you could actually touch him. There's a lovely verse in, in, in Mark's Gospel where Jesus is walking among the people. And what he says is this. I hope this isn't going to feed back on the, on the microphone. What he says is this. The kingdom of God is near. And that little word in Greek is engiken. It means it's, it's here, it's arrived, it's, it's up close. You can touch it. The kingdom of God is near. And the, th- the amazing thing is, the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see it was just where the people were. He went to where the people were. He walked along the street. He didn't say to them, if you want to follow me, you've got to come over here. He didn't say, if you're going to be a follower of mine, you've got to come inside this place where I live and you've got to do all the things that we do inside that place. He just went to where the people were and he said to them, right where they were, the kingdom of God is near. You can touch it. Are you with me? And the people he did that to, the people he said that to, the people he told that message to, tragically, they were people that he loved, but many people that said they believed in God didn't love and what happened was, as Jesus began to do that, you see, I, I, I was at a church the, the other week, I was listening to a sermon the other week, and it, interestingly enough, it was on discipleship. And the guy that was speaking on it, what he basically said was, he said, Jesus making disciples that would reach the whole world with the gospel was in his mind from the very moment he began his ministry. But what he had to do was he had to look for those people and find those people who really would follow him and do what he was saying that they should do rather than people that would just carry on doing what they'd always done. And if you just think about it for a moment, and, and as, I, as I just highlight a couple of these scriptures and then go deeper into what I think discipleship must look like, I think as I, as I look at scripture, I believe this is God's inspired word, do you? Amen. I really I actually believe that for so many reasons. The main reason, there are many, and I'm not sure if it's the main reason, but the one that motivates me most is because what I see in here and the truths it tells are so relevant to every generation that's ever lived. And so when I look at the Gospels, for example, and see what happened, I don't just read history, what happened 2,000 years ago. I'm reading about what happened then, but actually what happens now too. The same people are still here, if that makes sense. We're not that different to what we were. And when Jesus came... And his passion was to start a movement, and it's such a great movement. He even died for it. When Jesus came to start a movement that would let the world know that God wants to forgive them their sin and give them a gift of eternal life, which is what he came to do, he knew that his part in that mission was to pay the price for sin. He knew that. Nobody else could. Nobody else was the perfect son of God. Nobody else could pay the price of sin. But he knew that for the world to hear that message, he would have to one day go back to where he came and send some people to tell it. He knew it from the beginning. 
And so there were different kinds of people that, that he could have... Now, where would you expect him to start looking? Well, you'd probably expect him to start looking to those people that said they knew God, wouldn't you? The religious people. Just go back a few verses in John for a moment. He was in the world, this is verse 10, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. Listen, listen to this verse. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Here's Jesus, the word become flesh, laying down his life for the world, dying for the sins of people, a great, wonderful, life-changing message. Yet, here's the thing. The people that, if I can put it this way, the people that have spent all their lives in church, not quite, but you understand what I mean, they didn't even recognise him. Isn't that staggering? He, the, the Jewish people, the people, if you, you, the Old Testament, I understand it now, so I've read it a few times, I get it now, I didn't at the start. But those people that God had been working through for generations, these people, these were the ones that were, were supposed to be being made ready for when the Messiah came. And here's the staggering thing, that those people that really should be the ones that propelled the mission of Jesus on, they were the very ones that stood against it. They didn't even recognise him. They kept saying, crucify him. And in the end, there's this classic verse in John chapter 8 and verse 47, where Jesus says to these people, the problem is, you do not know God. I remember when I used to be a pastor of a church for a while on the east side of London. We used to have a, a number of people that were at the church when I went there. They were all people that had been there for a very long time. And they asked me if I'd come along to this church and, and help the church to grow. That's what they said. Can you help the church to grow? So I said, well, I'll give it a go. I'll do what I can. And uh, we started reaching people. We started going beyond the walls of the church and just getting, connecting with people that didn't even know who Jesus was. And uh, a number of these people who we met with after a while, they started becoming Christians and started coming along to the building and they, they wanted everything done differently because they didn't understand why we did a lot of this stuff. Why do you have this old organ? We had an old organ and it was out of tune and I think the organist was a bit out of tune as well. <laughs> <laughs> and you put those two things together and it was a, it was a noise. You know, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It was something, but it wasn't that, that's for sure. And lots of just traditions and ways that people did things, you know, we had. And, 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 and all, the, all these people were coming to faith in Christ and they were coming in and they were just messing everything up. Because they kept asking questions. Why are we doing this? This isn't helping us to find out how to follow Jesus. This isn't helping us to become disciples. Why are we doing this? And then we had church meetings where they voted and after a while there were, not, were, not, there were more new people than old people. By old, I don't mean age, I mean people that have been there longer. And the way it works in Baptist churches in England is the majority gets the vote. And all these new people started voting for new things. And all the old people who asked me to come and grow the church wanted to have a meeting with me. The deacons told me I'd ruined their church. And the older people asked me around for tea, which didn't mean tea, it meant... <coughs> and I used to go and sit with these older people and they said, Dennis, you've destroyed this church. And I said, what do you mean I've destroyed the church? You asked me to reach people. They said, yes, but they come along and they're spoiling everything. And one lady I remember in particular, I'm not going to give you her name, Mrs. C, I'll call her. She was, oh man, she was scary. Whenever I used to go visit her, I used to pray that she would be out. <laughs> Even though I knew she'd be in, she couldn't get out. That's why I used to go visit her. You ever prayed to something you know even God can't do? Well, I did that a few times. Oh Lord, make her be out today. And then I would knock on the door and she'd say, it's open. And I'd go in and, 
And I remember sitting with Mrs. C a number of times. When she would, whenever I went to visit her, I didn't care about her. I didn't, I didn't like her very much, if I'm honest with you. Is a pastor allowed to say that? No. No. <laughs> you have a wonderful pastor. Be glad I am not your pastor. Um, but she used to sit there and she used to moan about how she didn't like the way all these new people were coming in with their new ways of doing their new ideas and how these children made noise and how this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And how it was destroying her church that her family had built. That was her thing. And I used to try to pastorally weave my way through these conversations. This is what I said to her. Well, Mrs. C, C. I nearly almost gave her name then. Well, Mrs. C, you know, we're praying for you and pray, you know, that you will feel that, this, that you can be glad about what God is doing. Because it is great, isn't it, that all these families are coming to Christ. And she kind of went, yes. What I wanted to say to her was, you need to repent, darling. Sorry, ma- madam. I'm not even sure you know God. Because if you knew God, this is what I wanted to say to her, perhaps I'm too... Uh, but if you knew God, and you saw the good things that God was doing, then you would rejoice. You, you would rejoice at those things. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 8 when he says to these religious leaders, you don't know God. Because he was here, he was God in the flesh. He was seeing people's lives transformed, healing the sick, raising the dead, helping the blind to see, doing all these amazing things to show the kingdom of God is near. And all they kept saying to him was, just stop it, get out, you need to die. I pray, I wanted to spend a bit of time, I pray there's nobody in this building this morning that has any of that in them. If you do, don't let it stay with you. Because it can stick to us like glue. And it can just get in the way of everything. And we, we can find ourselves, that's why I say this word is such an eternal word, because this attitude of me, my church, my thing, my way, it's not just, it wasn't just the, the religious leaders of those days that had it, it sticks to all of us. It just becomes part of us. So, do you ever find it becoming part of you? You know, where you, where, where you think, I've been here a long time and we've always done it this way and this is how we should do it because this is who we are. Have you ever found that? I do. I find it. It just happens to us as people. Jesus came on mission to let the world know there's great news. Here's the challenge. People who have that attitude cannot be used by God. And the tragedy is, and it is a tragedy, I believe, and I travel all over the world and see this, churches are filled with people that Jesus could never use to join him in his mission because they're so into it being their church and their thing and their way that he cannot use them because they actually become opposition to what he's doing rather than behind what he's doing. Then there's another group of people um, that Jesus meets. And I see so many of these around today as well. They're they're both in John. I'm going to get to the discipleship thing in a minute, but I just want to lay this foundation for a little while, if that's okay. Because there's another group of people that... that, And I, I see so many of these. These people, they're not against what God is doing, but they see Jesus as this remarkable person, and they think, I want, I want to be around this Jesus because he gives me what I want. You know, they, they, they want to be in on it. He does miracles, let's go get healed. And he feeds, he feeds them with, with miraculous bread, so let's go get some more bread. And, and there's this classic incident in the Gospel of John where, where, where Jesus feeds the thousands, and they come back looking for more bread. It's free. They can have it for nothing. 
And they come back, and what they want is their carnal desire to be met. Give us some more of that bread. That's what they want. Give us more bread. And you know, when I, when, when I think about these people, these were the crowds, these were the thousands and thousands that followed Jesus around. They weren't interested really in what Jesus had come for. They were interested in what he could give them. They wanted what he could give them. And, and dare I say this, I don't know, I, I hope this isn't true of this group of people here this morning, but I, I meet so many Christians as I travel around the world who are following Jesus because there's something they're going to get out of it. You know, he's going to give me a blessing, he's going to give me this, he's going to give me that. And, it, and the whole point of my faith is if I, if I do what God says, then God's going to give me something and give me more of it and give me more of it. And I want to be around Jesus because of what I'm going to get. Do you ever find yourself thinking that kind of way? And the challenge is that these people, like the people today, they can't be used by God because they're only really in it for what they're going to get out of it. And the minute they don't get anything out of it, they stop doing it. And in, this, in the Gospel of John, just go to verse 6, would you? Chapter 6, sorry, of John chapter, John chapter 6, just for a moment. And there's, there's this amazing um, incident, really, I guess, where Jesus has fed the thousands. And then what happens is they come back looking for more bread um, because they think this is good, you know. Uh, we, we, get it, we get what we like by coming to this Jesus. So let's come and get some more of it. I, I, I met a lady in a, in a church, not in Florida, but somewhere in the United States, about a, about a year or 18 months ago. And I must admit, when she answered my question, I was staggered by what she said. Um, and and my, the question I asked her was a very simple. I was, I was preaching at a church plant in America. I'm not going to even tell you which state it was in. Um, and one of the questions I always ask people when I preach in a church plant, especially, is how did you get here? Because I'm still looking for the person that came there because they got saved rather than they transferred from another church. Uh, but so I asked this lady uh, um, after the gathering, I said, why did you come to this church? Yeah. Hoping she'd say, well, the Lord saved me last night and I'm here. But, and this was her answer. I couldn't believe it when she said it. This was her answer. I said, why do you come to this church? She said, because I really like the coffee. <laughs> can you believe that? I mean, can you believe someone would even say it, even if it was true? Now, I don't think anyone here would say that, would they? But, but what I, the reason I just tell, share that, which in some ways is a humorous, but in other ways is a tragic story, is that in some ways people's commitment to Jesus can be, I'll go to that church because I like the coffee. And no sense of the deep, deep commitment that Jesus is looking for in our lives, which is about us being transformed so that through us, the world can be transformed. And it's no different to what's going on here. Yeah, they like the bread. <laughs> Jesus didn't make miraculous coffee, he made miraculous bread, so they went for that and some fish as well. And they come to him, give us more of that bread. And if you look at John 6, you can see it. Jesus begins to teach about the real purpose of his coming. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what I will give you to drink is my blood. Unless you eat this flesh and drink this blood, you have no life in you. And in John's Gospel, right here in the middle of this revelation of God, it says on hearing this, many of these people said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Who can believe this? Who can obey this? And then in verse 66, many of his disciples no longer followed him. They turned back and no longer followed him. 
Friends, if we, and I say we because I'm a human being just like you trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus, if we are into Jesus because of what we get out of it only, he can't use us. Because we just, we only want him when it's our way. Do you see what I mean? And I, I, I confess to you, both of these first two groups of people I've talked about, I find bits of those in me that I have to constantly ask God to keep renewing, because otherwise I can get that way easily. I can so easily, can you get that way? Happens so easily. And so now to the heart of it. How long have I got left, by the way? A little while, okay. Do, do you, does it ever surprise you? I guess, it, I don't know if it does or not. It did me when I first read the Bible years ago. That here come, here's Jesus, he comes to the world. Just think about this for a moment. He comes to the world, the word become flesh, to save the world, to die on a cross, to lay everything down for the world. He does all of that. And yet, he's, he's, if you like, his strategy, what I think I would have done if I was Jesus, be thankful that I'm not. I think I would have tried to get as many people as possible to believe in me and then go and tell it to everyone because then I'd have a big crowd of people doing it. Yeah? Thousands of them. That's what I think I would have done. Just get as big a crowd as possible, because then you've got a chance, haven't you? The more the merrier, as we say in England. He didn't do that. If you actually look at it, at the end of it, he ends up with just a handful of people. If you just move on a little bit in John, John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 26. Well, go back a bit to verse 23. John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. And now Jesus is getting to the very heart of it, of what it means to be someone that he can use. And this is the key to what I want to spend just the next few minutes on before I finish the kind of people he really can use to change the world he's placed us all to be in. And here in John's Gospel, you get this brief version, really, of what it means to be someone that, that follows Jesus. If you go, just go to Matthew for a moment, because I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they expand that. They, it's a longer version of what Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew chapter 16. And verse 24. And I want to just spend the last few minutes just thinking about what this, this means. What, what did Jesus do to ensure that the mission continued? And how can we make sure that we're part of that mission continuing that he wants? That's what I want to speak about for the next few minutes. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he continues, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. We already sang this this morning in one of the songs that we sang. We sang these very words in one of the songs that you chose about Jesus having all of our lives, every part of it. And as we were singing, I was thinking, man, this is so easy to sing. But if we actually, if, we, if we'd have stopped while we were singing that, I'm not saying we should have, no criticism, by the way, but had we stopped and said, does anyone actually mean what they just sung? Yeah, really? My, the whole, every, everything, all of it, the whole thing. See, here's, here's what's going on as Jesus comes, becomes flesh to give his life 
for the world, to seek and to save what was lost, to complete his mission, all that he's doing. He's creating as well as that a people that are going to come with him on that mission so it can continue after he's gone. And that was always his plan. It wasn't an afterthought. So here we get to the heart of what does it mean to be someone? And, and here's the thing. Jesus, he doesn't offer a better life. He offers a new one. I want that just to sink down for a moment. He doesn't say, Dennis Peathers, carry on living your life and doing what you want to do, and I'm going to put a nice cream on the top of that cake and make it a nice cake for you. What he says is, give up the whole cake, give it to me and I'll give you a new one. That's what he says. That's the exchange. New life for old, isn't it? Can I dare to say as a friend, I hope I'm a friend of yours, that one of the great challenges facing the church today is we don't want a new life, we want a better one. We want a Jesus who gives us all the things that we want and all the things that we need on top of our own lives. So we live our life doing our thing, trying not to sin but still doing our thing and saying, Lord, give me this and Lord, give me that. Jesus never offered that. Ever. He never offered to be a top-up. He offered to be a complete and utter change and transformation in our lives so that we become new creatures who are living a new life. And that's what he did with those disciples. So let me just take a few minutes to talk about that and then I want us to finish. And I'm going to challenge everybody here this morning, if it's okay, to make a response to what I've said this morning. Everybody. Not just those who are not yet Christians, but all of us. See, with these disciples, what did Jesus do? And why is it so important that we think about this in, in, in Bradenton? I'm not probably saying it right, but you know where I mean, this place. Um, in 2018, this is, this is, you know, 2,000 years ago somewhere else, in a very different world. But is it that different? Not really. Because Bradenton is now becoming increasingly filled with people that don't know Jesus, who are not going to come to this building. doesn't matter what you do inside it, they're not going to come because they, they don't even know we're here. And they don't even care that we're here. Not really. And you know these people, don't you? They're your neighbours. They're in your family. They're your grandchildren. They're your children. They could be your husband or your wife or your parents. They could be that person across the street. They could be that person at work. You know them. They're everywhere around. They're not going to come to this church. They're just not coming. Some might. Most won't. How are we going to reach them? And this is where this word discipleship becomes so key. Because if, if we're not opposed to God or just wanting God for what he can give us, if, we've, if, we're, if we're prepared to go beyond that and say, God, I'm in it with everything I've got because you've given everything you've got to me. One of our pioneers in Sierra Leone, this is going to sound much more risky than most of us would do. I don't want to scare you with this, but it gives an example. Our, our pioneer, in, his name's Elijah, Elijah Valcastle. He lives in Freetown, Sierra Leone. And he, he's, with this rooftop thing that we're doing, his plan is he wants to go to the regions of southern Sierra Leone where the cannibals still live, to take the gospel to them. And I'm from Britain. In Britain, everyone's involved in health and safety. <laughs> yeah, we, we have to do risk assessments on blowing our nose. Uh, so I said to him, Elijah, I said, isn't that a bit dangerous? He said, yeah. I said, aren't you taking a big risk? He said, of course. He said, but Jesus gave everything for me, everything. So I'm just giving it back. I mean, how could he? And he was looking at me and saying, are you a silly old man, you know? What are you talking about? Why are you even, a, of course it's dangerous. Of course it could cost my life. But that's all it cost Jesus, his life. So what's the, what's the problem? Now, I'm not saying that every one of us needs to go to Sierra Leone and go to the, the people there because the mission field of Jesus is actually your street. 
you may be fortunate enough not to have cannibals living in your street. <laughs> but those people need to be reached just as much as the cannibals do. Because they need Jesus just as much. Because there's no way to heaven but by Jesus. So you might be a respectable Floridian who drives a nice car and has got another one in the garage and a boat that you take on the lake. It doesn't matter whether you're that or a cannibal. You need Jesus just as much. And if they're our neighbours, then we need to tell those people just as much as he needs to go to the people that are that cannibals in the southern regions of Sierra Leone. Do you see what I'm saying? But how? And this is where I want to finish. See, one of the challenges I think that we have to face when we think about discipleship, and, and I see this a lot as I travel across the United States, for many people, discipleship means going to a Bible study on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday morning or something, and we have a discipleship class. Marion, who's with me, we, we were meeting with some people the other day in, Ohio, in northern Ohio, and, and I was saying that you know, the, the big part of what we're doing through the rooftop is discipleship. And this guy said, oh, yeah, we have discipleship, didn't he? You know? And he said, yes, we have this seven-week course that everybody goes on. When they finish their seven-week course, they've, they're discipled, they're done. No! Sorry. No. <laughs> can I just say, there is no possible way that a person can be discipled by going through a seven-week discipleship course, sitting in a room being told a few Bible verses. It just cannot happen. The only way to be discipled is actually how Jesus did it, and that is not even in a room at all, but out there where the people are. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus did not teach them in here and send them out there. He taught them out there and then said, keep on doing it. Three things I want to say. They're very quick. They're not another sermon about what it means to be a disciple in that way. And the first one is this. If, we, if people, are, and Philip, I say this to you to encourage you, because I know this is your heart, and to the church, because I believe this is your heart too. But we've got to think differently about these things rather than just do the same things in a slightly different way. And I want to encourage you, encourage you, encourage you as friends, not tell you off or anything, I'm not doing that. That if we're really going to be about discipleship, we've got to rethink not just what it is, but how we go about doing it. And so here's, here's what I want to finish with. Jesus did it this way. Among all those people that came to persecute and try to kill him, who came for more bread, for more fish, for more healings, for more miracles, among all of those, he called to himself some who he called his closest disciples, and these are the ones he showed how to do this. Here's what he did. First thing, he told them what they had to do. He told them. He taught them the scripture. Often in discipleship in the church today, that is what the church does. It teaches people. We teach people. Yeah, we need that. And then we say a person's been discipled because they attended a Bible study. No, it can't happen. The second thing Jesus did is he showed them what to do. He showed them. They were with him. They saw him doing it. And he didn't do it in here, he did it out there. He showed them. People say to me all the time, Dennis, I cannot share my faith. And I say, what you mean is you don't share your faith. Two years ago, I would have said I can't speak Spanish. But now I'm learning. I still can't, but I'm doing a bit better. The only reason I couldn't speak Spanish is because I didn't speak Spanish. It's not because I couldn't. I had the ability, I just didn't do it. It's the same with learning to share our faith and talk about, to people about Jesus. We say we can't because we don't. If we did it, we'd find we could do it. But we don't do it. And the reason we don't do it is because we're afraid of what might happen if we do. Because we think we've got to be these experts that know how to preach a sermon with seven points all beginning with the same letter and quote 20 Bible verses. We don't have to do that. We just have to tell our story of what Jesus is doing. But we need each other to do it. 
And I'd encourage you as a church, if you're going to take discipleship seriously, recognise discipleship has to happen among the people. And your pastor and your pastors and your leaders, they must be people that show you, not just tell you what it is that has to be done. Because if they're not showing you, you're never going to learn how to do it. And it's not just true in, uh, in, in sharing your faith, it's true in everything, isn't it? Anything, anything in your life that you can do well, anybody here, I can guarantee you that at some point somebody told you what to do, but then showed you how to do it. Electrician, plumber, accountant, I don't know, whatever you are. Somebody told you and somebody showed you. Is that fair? It's the same with what we're talking about here. And then the last thing, having told them what to do and showed them what to do, Jesus then said, now go do it. And off they went. In pairs, never alone. In pairs. And they did it. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. How did they learn how to do it? By doing it. When they went to do it, the things that didn't work, they came back and said, it doesn't work. So he told them again and showed them again and off they went and did it again and eventually they got better at it. Never perfect, but by the end they weren't that much better and they were at the beginning in some ways, but they got a lot better. You with me? So friends, I'm going to land this now and finish. I'm going to come down. It makes a lot of difference if I come down one step, doesn't it? Look at that. Because I'm so tall up there, aren't I? The kingdom of God is near. He's, Jesus is here right now, I believe that. And this is why I believe, and this is why I said I wanted to finish this, what has become a longer talk than it should have, I'm sorry, with an invitation this morning. So often in church, we think of church as a place that we're in. But church is a people, that's us, isn't it? And so often we, when we come together, we invite people to, to make a response to become a Christian. But I'm just going to be honest with you, that is not the last decision I made about following Jesus. I've had to make many decisions about following Jesus in my life ever since I became a Christian. Because I get stuck sometimes, or I get comfortable, or I get fearful, or I get, you know? I reach that place where I say, that's it, no more, I'm not going to go anymore, because that takes me into having to really trust Jesus for stuff or whatever. Or sometimes I, even, I get disobedient too. I just don't want to do it. And it doesn't matter, because nobody else knows what I'm doing anyway. So I just keep on in that little bit of, you know, just, you know, you know what I'm saying? I believe that Bradenton needs you as followers of Jesus. It needs you. It needs you to share this wonderful news with them. That the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That this flesh was broken to pieces and smashed and slit and cut open on a cross so people could live and know God forever. These people aren't all ready to hear it just because you go tell them straight away, but they need you. They need you to build relationships with them. They need you to get to know them. They need you to love them and care about them and share this message with them. That's what they need. But to do that, we all need to become disciples. People who will do it out there. Be shown, then do it. 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 And then through us, Jesus can build his kingdom. So this is where I'd like to finish this morning. I'd like to ask, if you don't mind, would everyone please stand? You've been sitting for a long time. And I just encourage you just to take a deep breath. Sometimes it's good just to breathe in and fill your lungs. And just think about what... I've only just tried to preach what the Word of God says. I believe as faithful as I can, that's what I've done. It's in the word, it's there, it's true. 
Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he, she, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For all of us, that means different things. But Jesus is on mission. His mission has not finished. It continues to this very day and it will continue until he returns again. And he asks every one of us to be part of that mission. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to pray just a brief prayer. And then I want to invite all of you, everyone here, to take a step of faith, the next step on the road to being a true disciple of Jesus. So let's pray.